Hi, this is Braden Holpe. Hey, this is Tanner the Bulldozer Bozer. Hi, this is Brian Burke from Toronto, Ontario. This is Daryl Sutter. Hello, everyone. I'm Carly Agro from Sportsnet Central. This is Jay Onright. This is Quick Dick Quick Dick coming to you from Tufnell, Saskatchewan. Hey, everybody. My name is Steel Fleury. This is Kelly Rudy. This is Corey Cross. This is Wade Redden. This is Jordan Tutu. My name is Jim Patterson. Hey, it's Ron McLean, Hockey Net in Canada and Rogers Hometown Hockey, and welcome to the Sean Newman Podcast. Welcome back, folks, to the podcast. Excited to have you here. We got a great one on tap for you today, a little throwback. Um, I hope everybody had a great Christmas, uh, is looking forward to 2021. I'd be lying, you know, I was saying this uh, the other day um, that, you know, as tough as 2020 has been, uh, with all everything that's been going on, the podcast is we've been able to have a lot of fun. I mean, you know, if you've been listening since the start, one of the core things I wanted to do was to sit across from every single guest because I'm a firm believer in that part of the interaction. And you know, COVID made us all adjust, and by adjusting, you've seen some of the names that that have come across, and that wouldn't have been possible um, without what's going on currently. So I'm a little bit. Uh, hesitant to write 2020 completely off because from a podcast uh, experience and growth and everything else, it's been a lot of fun uh, being able to sit across from a, a lot of these names. In 2021, I've been having a little bit of fun on social media throwing out, you know, who do you guys want to see? And there are some big names uh, out there um, that people want to see, you know, whether you're talking one of the guys on my top five, a guy named Steve Eiserman, or you're talking, you know, Brett the Hitman Hart, uh, to throw it on a different, completely, you know, uh, on, a, on a 180, so to speak. Uh, that's not exactly a hockey player, is it? But they'd be cool nonetheless. I mean, Wayne Gretzky, of course, hops in there. But there, there's just been a ton of, of people throwing out great ideas. And I tell you what, if 2020 taught me anything, it is that by being persistent, sticking to your guns, and uh, trying to um, just push through some of the the BS or, or some of the, the the brick walls that have been put up, you know, on the other side, man, all of a sudden one day you're just sitting there and you got Don Cherry that just, you know, like if you've been listening, popped up a couple episodes ago. Glenn Healy, which uh, was just Monday's episode was fantastic. And I can tell you that January is going to come in with a bang. We got some great ones coming for you. I'm excited about it. Uh, and I think the possibilities for 2021 – or, you know, sky's the limit. I'm going to definitely push as hard as I can. If you got suggestions, make sure you hop on social media or track me down. Uh, visit SeanNewmanPodcast.com and fire them off. I'm, I'm up for anyone you want. Let me know, and uh, I'll see if I can make it happen. But before we get there, and before we get to today's episode, let's get to today's episode sponsors. I just got confirmation that Profit River, uh, led by Mr. Clay Smiley, are hopping back on for 2021. Profit River is the retailer of firearms, optics, and accessories serving all of Canada. They specialize in importing firearms in the United States, hard-to-find calibers, rare firearms, special editions. Uh, check them out at ProfitRiver.com. If you don't know Clay's Clay's story in Profit River, he was a school teacher who started his business out of his garage, uh, and eventually it led to, you know, like he, you know, so to speak, earmuffs. And he had to shit or get off the pot. And uh, now he's got this successful business here in town. And once upon a time, he, he was a school teacher. And, and, you know, in his off hours, he's running an online business. Pretty cool story. 
Um, Carly Kloss and Windsor Plywood, builders of the podcast studio table, they are also in for 2021. For everything wood, these are the guys, whether we're talking about mantles, decks, windows, doors, or sheds, when you want quality, stop in and see the boys at, uh, and ladies for that matter, at Windsor Plywood. Or just hop on your phone and take a look at their social media, Instagram, Facebook pages. Uh, they got some cool, cool stuff going on. Give them a call today, 780-875-9663. Jen Gilbert and team, they've signed on as well for 2021. Uh, they want to know that they've been here since 1976. For over 40 years, they've been the dedicated realtors of Coldwell Banker Cityside Realty. They've served Lloydminster and the surrounding community. They are passionate about our community, and they pride themselves on giving back through volunteer opportunities and partnerships as often as they can. They know that home is truly where awesomeness happens. Coldwell Banker Cityside Realty for everything real estate, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 780-875-3343. Oh, did I mention an uh, HSI group signed up for 2021? Uh, shout out to the boys there. Uh, they're the local oil field burners and combustion experts that can help make sure you have compliance system working for you. They, uh, the team also offers security. Oh, wait, the building I'm in has that security. Uh, pretty slick with the, the fob keys. You just swipe. You don't need, you know, the, the typical lock and key anymore. It makes it nice and easy, especially, you know, this winter has been pretty freaking nice. Uh, but when it's minus 40 out, believe me, you want to get in the building quick, bang, that... Uh, that allows it, tracks everybody who's coming and going. They, uh, they offer surveillance and automation products for residential, commercial, livestock, and agricultural applications. I know a lot of the farmers out there, calving season, wouldn't you like to have a couple of cameras just set up so you can sit on the inside and, oh, what's going on there? And then maybe you can spot something from the warmness of your home. Uh, they use technology to give you peace of mind so you can focus on the things that truly matter. Stop in and see Brody or Kim today at 3902 52nd Street or give them a call, 306-825-6310. Clinton team over at Trophy Gallery, championship belts, custom medals, die-cast signage, name tags, engraving on Yetis and Brewmates, business awards in crystal and glass. They ship Canada-wide. Go to trophygallery.ca. They got over 5,000 products. And if you use promo code NEWMAN, you'll get 15% off any sport, anytime from bodybuilding to hockey. Gartner Management is a Lloyd Mister-based company specializing in all types of rental properties to help meet your needs. Whether you're looking for small office or a 6,000 square foot commercial space, give Wade Gartner a call today, 780-808-5025. SMP Billboard, Miss Deanna Wandler, read and write, always making me look sharp. And if you want to look sharp, give Deanna Wandler a call today or read and write a call and they'll get you hooked up for some outside signage or maybe you got a decal you want to put on the wall of your office. Man, they do some solid, solid work, the entire team there. If you're heading into any of these businesses, make sure you let them know you heard about them on the podcast. And if you're interested in advertising on the show, visit uh, Sean Newman. Well, get a message to me any which way you like. You can head to SeanNewmanPodcast.com, top right corner, hit the contact button, and send me your info with a little blurb about what you're looking for. And uh, we gotta, we'll get you hooked up. 2021, just around the corner. Now, let's get on to that T-Bar 1 tale of the tape. Originally from Saskatoon, Saskatchewan, he played for the Canadian national team at the end of the 60s, going to an Olympics. He played 223 games in the NHL with the Chicago Blackhawks and California Golden Seals. He then played an additional 353 games in the WHA for the Cleveland Crusaders, the San Diego Mariners, and of course, the Edmonton Oilers. 
I'm talking about Jerry Pinder. So buckle up. Here we go. This is Jerry Pinder, and welcome to the Sean Newman Podcast. Well, welcome to the Sean Newman Podcast. Today, I am joined by Mr. Jerry Pinder. So first off, thanks for uh, hopping on with me. Yeah, thanks for the call, Sean. Uh, I know you had some of my good pals on, so uh, I'm looking forward to it. <laughs> yes, we've had Mr. Cheevers and we've had Mr. Skip on. Uh, they both talk very highly of you. So, and I've actually had some buddies who've been around when you three have been in the same room together. And I hear it's quite uh, hilarity ensues, is what I've been what I've been told. Well, I think it, I think it's pretty much proportional to the amount of pops we have when we're doing something when we have a get together. <laughs> That's, pro that's probably fair. And I should probably mention to all the listeners, thanks to Skip for, for hooking this up. Uh, Skipper has been pretty good to me. He's been uh, willing to put me in contact with some some uh, people like yourself who can share some stories from the past and look forward to diving in uh, to your career and, and uh, some of the places you've played. So Yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm happy to, I'm happy to uh, pass along whatever I can. Well, let's, let's start with Saskatoon. Um, you're born and bred uh, in the Saskatoon area. Um, let's start with just, like, what was, uh, what was growing up playing hockey in Saskatoon like for you from the early days? Um, it, was, it was the greatest place I can think of to be uh, born and raised, and uh, sports was a huge part of our family. And of course, uh, my brothers and I all played a lot of hockey. Um, I played with my brother Herb uh, with Saskatoon Blades and with my brother Herb on the uh, Canadian Olympic team. And my brother Dick and my brother Tom uh, both played pretty serious hockey. So it was just the thing to do. And it was a small city at that time. And everybody knew everybody. It was very competitive. And uh, I can't say enough good things about uh, being raised in Saskatoon. Well, did you grow up playing with a helmet on, Jerry? Let's start. Let's start real simple here. Yeah, that that's a good question because people have been wearing players been wearing helmets for so long that that uh, they probably wouldn't understand this. But my seventh year um, as a pro, I finally put a helmet on. I got clubbed over the head uh, in training camp and had about ten stitches in my head, and the uh, doctor told me I, I had to sit out a couple of days of training camp. The doctor told me I uh, couldn't go back unless I put a helmet on. So, cause of the, the stitches and so on, I did. And I never took it off, but in, in playing minor hockey in Saskatoon, playing uh, junior B hockey in Saskatoon, playing junior A for the Saskatoon blades, and then going to the Olympic team for a couple of years and then six years in pro uh, before I wore a helmet. So I never, I never wore one until I was what, 26 or seven years old. Were you ever, like, I guess not knowing any different, right? Today, I'd be almost nervous to go on the ice. Well, I know I would be. To play a hockey game without a helmet on would be nerve-wracking. Um, back then, obviously, you just went and played. But were there, you know, like, were guys dropping? You know, you mentioned getting cracked on the head with a stick. Was that commonplace or not so much? Uh, it, wasn't, it wasn't commonplace in minor hockey in Saskatoon. 
when I went to the uh, Western Junior League, it it was more prevalent. I mean, the rules were were way different than they are today, and and there was literally no suspensions. And so, you know, if you got whacked over the head, that was tough luck. And I mean, the the flip side was true. If you whack somebody over the head, it was tough luck for them too. There wasn't much going on in the way of penalties. And then um, the Olympic program I was in for two years was, was we were in Europe most of the time and it was pretty clean hockey on big ice surface, big, big ice surfaces then. So harder to, harder to get your shots in. And, and then the, Nas- the National Hockey League was, was pretty brutal. And that was the time when Boston won their, their 70, 1970 cup and 72 cup. And they were very tough, mean team. And then Philadelphia came along and won in 74 and 75. And they were really tough and really mean. And that was kind of the era in 75, 76, when people started wearing uh, helmets because of, because of the concern for what might happen to your head. Yeah. For obvious reasons. For obvious reasons. <laughs> well, I'm curious about, you know, your time. Um, I don't want to skip past the blades because you had a, a healthy start to your career there. You set uh, franchise records. I think you guys started in the SJHL and then switched uh, one of the years, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, my first year was the Saskatchewan Junior League. And my second year, uh, I guess I was 17. And uh, we went ro- kind of rogue and the league went rogue and Edmonton Oil Kings came in, Calgary came in, um, Brandon was in and uh, that was called the Canadian Major Junior League, but that was the official start of the uh, Western Hockey League. So uh, that was, the league expanded quite a bit after that, going out to the West Coast and Kelowna and going down to the States um, in Portland and Seattle and Tri Cities and so on, but we were the my second year in the league. We were the original uh, Western Hockey League. Well, what do you remember about the original season of the Western Hockey League? All these different teams, the travel. You know, I've had a lot of younger guys come on, uh, even guys that are still currently playing in the dub. You know, one of the favorite questions is the bus trips and um, some of the antics on there and. And just how much travel they do in that league, how long they're on a bus trip for, especially now going out to the West Coast and the States, like you say. What, what do you remember about that first year in the, in the, the Western League? Yeah, the, I mean, it's a good point. The travel was really tough. And, and uh, we were in a, most of the time in a smaller bus. Um, no radio, no TV. No, not, not much room to place your, your um, suitcases and so on. It was underneath the bus and no place to sleep and so on. And I was in um, my first year of university at, uh, in uh, business at the University of Saskatchewan. So I had many, many nights coming home at uh, getting off the bus at two or three in the morning. And the thing I remember most of all is my father getting me up at seven to go to school. So there was no shortcuts no sleeping in no nothing and it was it was tough but we had a really good team uh great bunch of teammates uh we had an awesome power play and that was in in a way that toned down the 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 destruction in the league that sticking over the head and 
and the elbows and the head and so on. It, it turned it down for our team because by about Christmas time, the rest of the league was starting to figure out we had a heck of a power play. And so they had to figure out another way to, to stop you besides playing real dirty hockey. So that was a, that worked to our advantage in that, in that event, but it was a tough league, a very tough league. Well, that second year, you put up 140 points in like 55 games. Yeah, I was, um, I played on a heck of a line and, uh, the power play, uh, we had uh, big, strong centerman, Dale Fairbrother, uh, Bernie Blanchett from Eden Miota was on the right side. And then my brother Herb was a key on the power play along with an another one of our defense. And I believe it was Larry Tronstadt. And we see in those days, it wasn't like they're trained. Now you take 45 minutes, 50 seconds, 45 seconds, 50 seconds, 60 seconds on the power play. And then you get off and they change. We played almost the full two minutes on every power play all year. So it was quite a bit different. And uh, we racked up a lot of points and a lot of wins from, uh, from our power play. What, uh, what do you, uh, what do you like about the game now? Cause I mean, not what do you like? I shouldn't say it that way. Like back then it was a tough, mean game to, to use a couple of your words. And now I mean, you can't even whack a guy and I'm not saying that's wrong or right, but that is a, you know, over a, what did that be? 50 year span. The, uh, the game has really changed. It's really uh, more, you know, the skill level, the speed, we hear about it all the time, but you're a guy who played and put up an amazing amount of points and played through the tough, rugged era of it. What, what do you miss about that time compared to now? Oh, that's a, that's a really good question. Um, you, I mean, I was used to that style of play at 17 years old. So I didn't know what it was like to, to play in, in what, what it would be like to play in today's current National Hockey League. Um, but as, as it relates to the rules, they, they haven't changed the rules. They've made new rules. For instance, your stick can't come above your shoulders. Um, we used to carry our sticks pretty high when somebody was running at us because that was your only protection. If you don't get your stick up, you're going to get run over and hurt badly. And so you learned that pretty early. Now you can't do that. Um, the interference issue, uh, you know, you can't interfere with a forward moving in to the offensive zone anymore. And that's, a, that's another new rule. It's a big deal. And I think by and large, the rule changes have been, have been very, very good. Um, there's a few of them that I have a little, you know, I kind of have a little doubt about one of them is, is how they call goalie interference. Um, you know, there was no such thing in those days. And as it relates to, to using your stick or your elbows or whatever, and like we used to do, um, there were no, there were no suspensions really in those days. So if you did something really bad, you know, you might get a 10 minute misconduct, but there was no such thing as suspension. So, the suspensions have really changed the way that the kids play now in the national hockey league, because you can't get away with doing anything stupid. And they have, I mean, don't forget they have two referees where we played my whole career all the way through pro was one referee. So they haven't got, they haven't, they haven't got eyes in the back of, your, of their heads and you could get away with a lot more than now with two referees. You got one, one uh, deep and one not so deep in the offensive zone, one out by the blue line. So they can see everything that's going on. And 
I think the changes are good for the game. They're, they're really skilled kids now. And they're, I mean, they, they can skate, you know, and in the old days, they never had four lines. We had, we dressed maybe 10 forwards and five defensemen and two goalies. So, you know, your, your ninth, eighth, ninth forward, maybe couldn't shoot the puck very well, maybe couldn't skate very well. Well, now you got your, some of your fourth lines are just loaded with really good skaters who can really shoot the puck. So that part of it's changed a lot. Um, and you got, you got usually six defensemen on each team who can play. And we went with four defensemen every game for 50, 60 games in junior. And then four, maybe a little bit of five defensemen uh, all through the, the, my pro career. So it's really changed a lot. And, the, and by the way, I think for the better. You've said, you've said a couple of things there. I got to, I got to follow up on. Did you say that, uh, you were talking about goalie interference. You didn't have goalie interference. So were goalies free? Uh, if they were out of their crease, you could run them over. Yeah. A lot of that went on. Um, and there usually wasn't a penalty for it because you could sort of fake it that you didn't mean to do it. And the, the, the flip side of that, I mean, that sounds funny, but that's the way it was. And the flip side of that is that uh, you had several goalies in the league who were pretty wicked with their stick too. So you had to be careful on that side of it. You could only do so much before you'd, you'd get what was coming to you. And, and that was, that was the, the equalizer for the goaltenders. Who was who was the 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 goalie you didn't go around because of his his stick? Well, you know, in in uh, when I jumped from the National Hockey League to the World Hockey Association, uh, you had cheesy on your podcast. I understand. Yeah, I haven't, I haven't talked to him about it, but um, he could wield his stick pretty well. And when we jumped to, and he was in Boston when I was in uh, Chicago, and so he had to be a little bit careful around their net. And then when we joined forces in the first year of the world league and played together for four years, um, he appreciated the fact that, that he could, he could clean out the front of his own net um, because he was, he was really good with his stick. I mean, he was a great goaltender, good puck stopper and uh, he could take care of himself. So he was one of the ones that in junior, I don't know. I, I, I think 70% of the goaltenders were like that. So you, well, you could, you could interfere with them all you wanted. There was a penalty to pay if you did a little too much. So it was an equalizer for them. <laughs> the other thing, oh man, just, uh, I could just imagine how tenacious you'd have to be with that old stick. Uh, but I mean, by the time I was going through junior, there was hardly much of that left. It, it's way harder than it was now, but, um, you know, you think of how far it's come, even by the time I was, uh, in the midst of minor hockey, it's, it's gone a long way. The other thing that sticks out is for defense in the national hockey, they, they would run, uh, 2d pairings all, all game long. Yeah. And in, uh, when I joined Chicago, uh, Dougie Jarrett and, uh, Bill White, we got in a trade from Los Angeles, Keith Magnuson, who I grew up with in Saskatoon, playing against he came out of Denver and uh Patty Stapleton Whitey Stapleton those were our four guys who played almost exclusively um sometimes we had a Paul Schmier was was on that team for a couple of years and he anybody was hurt he played a lot but it was almost exclusively 4D uh for every team 
you know, Boston was a really good team then. And they had, of course, they had Orr who played at least 40 minutes a game. And they had Don Ari, uh, Dallas Smith, and maybe Gary Doak were their four defensemen. They played, they ran hard with four, but mostly, mostly three and a half because Orr played 40 minutes a game, which I know it's hard, it's hard to understand now, but that's the way it was. Well, when you got a guy like Orr, I mean, let the guy play. I mean, why well, not? Yeah, you you probably got a lot of good information from Cheesy on him, but um, I've never I've never played against anyone like that, and I've never seen since I retired anybody. He's the best player ever, and and no, I don't know who's in second place, but they're not really that close to Orr. That's how good he was. And that, and by the way, that's not a, that's not a knock on any of the guys like Gretzky's unbelievable. Um, when I played in Chicago, Bobby Hall was on Stan Makita. They were unbelievable. Um, Montreal had uh, Beliveau in the late stages of his career and Guy Lafleur was outstanding. Um, but there again, uh, Phil Esposito was terrific in Boston, but again, you know, Orr was so good. Um, we played them in the playoffs in the semifinals my first year in the league. And we had just beaten Detroit four straight and Boston beat us four straight. And Orr was killing a penalty. I'd never seen this happen before. And I don't know that I've ever seen it since, but he got the puck in his own end and carried it all the way up the ice through two or three guys, went around our net in Chicago. He's killing a penalty and he goes all the way back to the Boston end with the, with the puck. So he'd, he'd been around the world in about 30 seconds and still had the puck in his own end. It was, it was amazing. And I, I, I understand he did that more than once because other people have said they saw him do the same thing. And I'm sitting on the bench watching this going, oh, holy smokes, we better decline the next power play. Well, you bring up my uh, – I wasn't old enough to watch Bobby. But on Christmas morning growing up, we always got Don Cherry's newest Rock'em Sock'em. And in the first one, I believe – maybe second, one of the first two, is Bobby Orr embarrassing the Atlanta Flames. And it's on a penalty kill, and he's standing behind the net, but nobody wants to chase him. And no. then he finally winds it up, goes end-to-end, -end, scores, and puts his head down because he knows he just embarrassed the Flames. That's the famous line from Don Cherry. And I remember watching as a kid over and over again going, like, that's, that's pretty impressive. But hearing you guys tell these stories – is, you know, you're right. Like, when was the last time you saw anyone do such a thing in the NHL? Uh, I certainly have never seen it done. Well, it was unheard of because even when you're killing a penalty, you get an opportunity in the offensive zone, you're going to try and score. Well, he, he didn't even try and score. He was trying to get rid of the two-minute penalty and get back to five on five. So he took it all the way back into his own end. And, you know, I was thinking about it after the series was over, and I thought, wow, that was – a very smart thing for him to do. He wasn't worried about scoring a goal. He just wanted to keep the puck out of his own net. So he kept the puck for almost the full two minutes. Pretty good way to do it. So when you talk about, or you, you talk about uh, just thinking the game, obviously he was very smart, but on top of that, his skating ability, handling the puck was just on another level. Yeah, it, it was. I mean, his, his skating was on another level and, his thought processes were on another level. He had a great shot. And uh, the other thing that really sticks out uh, about Orr was um, his, his strength. Uh, I think he, 
I don't know, he probably played at about six feet, you know, five eleven or six feet. But from the waist down, you couldn't you couldn't stop him. He was so strong. And that was all part of being a good skater, but he was also, you know, there's a lot of fast players who aren't as strong from the waist down, but he was he was really hard to get a hold of from the waist down, just incredibly strong. And I think that gave him the edge in terms of his ice time as well. You know, he could handle 40 minutes a game. Whereas most most guys, if they played 30, that was quite a bit. Yeah, I, I'm trying to even think of a defenseman who played similarly to the way he did and logged that many minutes. Like the only guy in my era that there's two of them that come to mind, uh, Pronger, Chris Pronger played a lot of minutes. You know, we got to watch him here in Edmonton, but he didn't, he was efficient. He didn't uh, race up and down the ice. Like he, he was an efficient big body, but the other guy was Scott Niedermeyer. He's probably my favorite defenseman I ever got to watch because he would attack the offensive zone and somehow be the first guy back to make sure there was no odd man rushes. But I'm not so sure, certain he's even, uh, you know, once again, uh, he wasn't playing 40 minutes a game. He was logging some serious minutes, but I mean, all, everything uh, on top of what Orr's done and then to play 40 minutes doing it is just crazy. Yeah, I mean, you make a really good point on Scott Niedermeyer. Um, there's been some pretty good defensemen come through the league. Ray Bork is another good example. Logged a lot of minutes, but and Niedermeyer was pretty darn good offensively. And he played the game uh, from, from the red line into the offensive zone, similar to Orr, um, in that he was a very good skater. He was a big, strong guy and so on. But the comparison isn't really fair to Scott Niedermeyer because Orr was that good. You know, he was so much better than everybody else. And that's Scott Niedermeyer is a heck of a player. And Ray Bork's been a heck of a player. And there's a lot of really Larry Robinson was a very good defenseman. Uh, Serge Savard was a really good defenseman. And those guys all deserve a lot of credit. It's just that Orr was in the class by himself, really. Well, I want to talk to you about this Canadian national team. Your, your Olympic go, you, you mentioned it off the hop a, a little bit. Um, yeah, just, you gotta, you gotta lead me through this. You go from playing with the Saskatoon Blades in the meantime, do you get drafted in the NHL or is it right to the Canadian national program? Like how does this all kind of fall in? Well, there wasn't a formal draft in those days. Uh, you were owned by the area that you lived in and like Moose Jaw Canucks were the, were the Blackhawks, Saskatoon Blades were the LA Blades in the Western League, but the affiliation was with the Blackhawks. Regina Pats were the Montreal Canadiens. Um, so when I was 18, I'd had that pretty good year in junior. And my brother also had a very good year. He was two years older than I was. And we were invited to the tryout for the Canadian Olympic team, which was a full-time team based in Winnipeg. It was started four years earlier or five years earlier in uh, University of British Columbia by Father Bauer. Father Bauer came from uh, Toronto St. Mike's junior team where they had a very successful program. And had this long-term vision of the Olympic program and put it together out in UBC. And then a few years later, they moved to Winnipeg, a full-time team there. Most of the guys were in school at the University of Manitoba. And so when I was 18 and my brother was 20, we were invited, uh, Herb and I were invited to try out. Jackie McLeod had ta largely taken over the program. And uh, we, we were invited from the blades because of the years that we'd had to try out and the training camp started at uh, about August 1st. 
So we went to camp and the camp was about a month long. And, and then shortly after that team started playing games and even went to Europe uh, for two or three weeks in October of that year. That was the fall of, uh, that was the fall of 1967 because in the new year, the Olympics were on in Grenoble, France, and we were invited to try out. And we both had pretty good camps and um, I, I would say pretty fortunate to make the team, but we did. And so I had two years of junior left and my brother had just finished his final year of junior and it was a great fit for us. Um, I could have gone back to junior if I didn't make it, or perhaps the, they might have signed me in the Central Pro League then, I'm not sure, I, I didn't test that, but uh, we both made it and we were full-time students at the University of Manitoba and full-time players on the Winnipeg, uh, in Winnipeg on the Canadian Olympic program, which I don't know, we played maybe 50, 60 games a year. Um, a lot of them in Europe against uh, Finland, Sweden, Russia, Czechoslovakia then, it wasn't the Czech Republic. And, um, you know, we, we had a tough time when we got back to Winnipeg because we'd missed a lot of school. But the professors at the University of Manitoba were very, very good to us. And, you know, we made it through. We made it through our years. I was there two years and, and passed my classes both years. I wasn't an A, an a student, but I, I got through and, you know, we missed a heck of a lot of school. And another thing that was really interesting, Jackie McLeod, was the coach uh, of the Olympic program, and um, it was a, it was a high end program. I I could I think I could make the argument that our Olympic team would have made the playoffs in the expansion division in the National Hockey League. We were we were that good a team, and a lot of the guys had been in the program for three and four years. Franny Huck, who's a legend in uh, in the Saskatchewan Junior League, I think he scored eighty five goals one year or something, and he was on the team. I ended up playing with Franny for a lot of the first year, but we had a very, very good team and we played Detroit twice in exhibition. They beat us like five, four and five, three. And then we played St. Louis blues. We beat them twice. We played, uh, LA Kings. I think we beat them twice. And we played a few, uh, Western pro league teams, which we beat, handily like six seven eight to one so we had a pretty good club well it's it's just in my time frame i've never that model sounds like the soviet model of putting together a group of kids and letting them play as a team and then taking them to the olympics where in my lifespan it's been the Gretzky of the world or the stevie eiserman or whoever the group is selecting your nash or your olympic team to go off to the olympics so to speak um, when you talk about going to school at the U of M and playing hockey for Canada, were you guys then, so you didn't play like, it wasn't like you had every weekend games coming up. Would you just go off and play Don the Canadian Jersey and fly over to France and play a couple games and then come home? No, that was the tough part with school because every time we went like the first year, including the Olympics, which we were gone for, uh, three weeks at least, maybe more, uh, we would play probably six, seven games. You know, we'd play two in Prague and in, in, in Czech Republic. And we'd play one, one time we played two in Finland and Helsinki and Tampere. Then we went, we were in Sweden, in uh, Stockholm, played a couple there. We went to Norway, played a couple there, 
played a game in Paris on the way home. And so that would have been seven. We were seven or eight games and we were close to three weeks get back. And that was a tough part with school. You had a lot of catching up to do, but at the same time you had to uh, be at practice at uh, five o'clock at the Winnipeg arena. So there wasn't much spare time going on in those days. That's for sure. How was the, the three week road trip though in Europe? Well, I was pretty young and, and uh, you know, I needed, I needed nutrition and then to eat property and so on. That was the toughest part for me because most of the guys were maybe say four years older than I was and they were big, strong, mature guys. And I wasn't quite there yet. So I, that was the part that was tough on me was eating properly because you're eating strange foods uh, and each country had different foods and it wasn't like I was usually, you know, my usual steak or something like that that we used to do. So that was a tough part, but at the same time, you know, we played on those big rinks over there. They were all, Oh, 100 by 200. And when the, when the rinks in the NHL were like 185 or 190 feet long. And so in preparation, I didn't know it at the time, but in preparation for a professional career in the National Hockey League, that was the best thing I could have done because I think over the two years, it really helped my skating. You had to really go be able to go to get to somebody on a, on a 200 foot rink and, and eight, 90 feet wide. And so I learned a lot, and Jackie McLeod was an excellent coach. I learned an awful lot from him. Uh, so that, you know, there was a lot of good things about those two years, including the fact that I was able to get uh, two more years towards my business degree, which proved to be uh, pretty important when I retired. So all in all, wonderful, and especially in, in uh, I guess it was February of 68 when we played in the Olympics in France, in Grenoble in the mountains in the eastern, the uh, eastern side of France near Switzerland. And uh, that was a big deal. I mean, I, I remember every moment about it. That was before I turned pro. So <clears throat> now, in those days, there was no, no professionals allowed in the Olympics. And even though the Russians and the Czechs for sure were, were what we would term as professionals because they were full-time hockey players, Russia mostly from the Russian, we're in the Russian military, and therefore had all the time they wanted to play hockey. They didn't do anything military. All they did was play hockey, but they wouldn't allow United States or Canada to have any professional players. And that's why, that's why uh, they, Father Bauer's concept was so good. And Jackie McLeod took it over and it was a wonderful concept. And we, and, and again, 68, we had a heck of a team, a really good team. So what was the Olympics like that? Well, we were under lockdown, you know, for, I don't know, about two and a half weeks, I think it took. Um, and we were in a Olympic village. We were in a high rise that, I don't know, we were up pretty high in the high rise. I don't remember what floor, but we ate in, we ate in, you just walk out your door and walk a block and there's Olympic village where you, where you have a big restaurant and you get all kinds of different food, anything you really needed. It was, it was a tough grind. Um, because the sleep, the sleep part was difficult. It was very exciting to be in the Olympics and get proper rest was hard. And we, uh, we were a real good bunch together. We were, like I say, with Jackie, we were in Olympic Village, you're under lockdown, so there's nothing you can do uh, that would be negative towards, towards uh, your training or playing hockey. So it was, it was a pretty good atmosphere. I, you know, we, there was 
there was an opening ceremonies, which we weren't allowed to go to because we played the next day and you had to be standing around on your feet the whole afternoon in the opening ceremonies. The interesting thing, we played the final event of the 68 Winter Olympics. Um, the final event, I believe it was a Saturday night and we played Russia for the gold medal. And we lost, we lost the game, unfortunately, five nothing to Russia, but we had a heck of an Olympics and the, there was no closing ceremonies in those days. They played the Russian anthem because Russia beat us. So they, the, the team that won in international hockey, they always played their anthem. And that was pretty hard for me to take because I mean, it was a brutal anthem and it just went on and on and on and on. We just lost a big game. We've got to sit and listen to this Russian anthem, which was terrible. And that was a, a tough thing to do. And then after the Russian anthem, uh, we got our, we got our medals and the Russians were the last to get theirs because they got gold. And, uh, and then they played a couple of songs in the rink in Grenoble. It was a big new building about, I don't know, 18,000 seats maybe. And of course it was full for the gold, the gold medal hockey game. And um, they played a couple of songs that got the people rocking. And that was, that was the closing ceremony. I mean, it's changed so much now. It's crazy. Absolutely crazy. They, they played a couple songs for the closing ceremonies in a rink. Yeah, that was it. That was it. There was no official closing ceremony or anything. And if my memory serves me correct, the event that was on before our final event, which, are, which was our game, was the finals of the figure skating. Because when we came into the building for our game that night, uh, we stood around for a while watching these gals figure skate. And it was, it was the gold medal figure skating event. That, was, that would have been second last event. Um, and then our hockey game. And so that was it. The Olympics were over. <laughs> and we, we, uh, we stayed overnight on the way home in, uh, I think it was Frankfurt. But I could be wrong. I think it was a Frankfurt flight to Montreal. But um, we took off out of Grenoble got uh the next day we had no time to celebrate we went to frankfurt and then we had a little bit of a celebration there that night uh it was it was subdued because we didn't win gold but we hop on a plane the next morning and we're back to montreal change planes go to winnipeg and you know monday morning you're uh, you're back in school that's what it was like would that have all been televised for like would that game have been televised back here in Canada? our gold medal game against russia was televised and I think various events in the Olympics were televised. And um, it wasn't like Olympic coverage as we know it today, but they were televised. And, and of course, the problem with, with our, uh, with our uh, hockey games was that it was, you know, say seven or eight o'clock European time. So it was, uh, you know, nine or 10 in the morning in Canada. And, you play, you play all week and probably most people were working. And I don't know whether those games were televised or not. I don't remember that, but it would have been a, it wouldn't have been a huge audience. we got a, we had a heck of a big audience uh, for the final game. I know that we found that out when we got back to Winnipeg and an interesting, I just thought of this, but an interesting story on when we got back to Canada, uh, which was, uh, about a day and a half to two days later from the final game. And we were roundly criticized in the Toronto and Montreal papers for not winning the gold medal 
and we were we were bitterly disappointed to be treated like that in the press and they didn't have any idea what we what we went through the whole year to get there and school and you know special trainings that we special types of trainings we do sometimes on the weekends and uh, they had no idea and we had a really good team but that russian team they'd have, they'd have beat every, they'd have beat every expansion team in the national hockey league and some of the original six for sure. I don't know if they were good enough to beat Boston or Montreal, but it would have been a heck of a game. And when the, the first series that the pros were allowed in was the 72 series that was it called Canada cup? Maybe it was called then I forget, but, and that ended up Canada winning in the final minute with Paul Henderson's goal in 1972. But my brother and I were called by some reporters, sports reporters in Toronto and Montreal. I think Toronto is my memory there. But they asked me what I thought about the series. And I was in the National League at the time. So I knew the competition in international hockey. And I knew the competition in the National Hockey League. And so I remember telling this gentleman, a Toronto sports writer, that I thought the series was going to be 5-3 for Russia. Russia wins the series 5-3 because they, would, they, would, they trained harder than the NHL did in the summer and they were ready to go and they were a very, very good team. And you, you know, if you talk to anybody who was on the 72 team, they were very surprised at how good the Russians were. So I gave my prediction of 5-3 Russians in an eight-game series. And I think they, the reporter paid a little bit of lip service to it, but didn't really want to print it because he, because he thought my prediction was so outrageous that Russia was going to win the series. Like everybody thought it was going to be eight, nothing Canada win eight straight games. And we knew different because uh, my two years with the Olympic team, I think we played Russia 20 times and we knew, we knew every player and how good they were, what their weaknesses were, what their strengths were. And the national hockey league didn't understand that at that time, because there'd never been a game between a national league team and a rush and the Russian national team. So that was really interesting. We got back to Canada and we were, we were criticized in the papers for not being a very good team. And, and we were, we were extremely disappointed in that. Well, what is it like with the Soviets? I mean, you played at a iconic time, I would say like yes, with, with the Soviets. Absolutely. They're held in such revere. The, the Soviets from that, that time era um, or that era, I guess uh, who were like, what are some of the, what did they do that was so good? Were they just skilled? Were they physical? Was it all the above? They were, every player on the team was very, very strong. Um, and they, they, they were used to the big ice surface. And we weren't as used to it as, as they were, but we, we were getting there. They moved the puck incredibly well. Um, they, they didn't take shots from all over the place. They usually, when, when they took a shot, it was usually an open net. So if they had 20 shots on you, 15 of them were really good shots and, and half, seven or eight of them would have been open nets. Uh, they passed the puck so well and they had a power play that was just dizzying. I mean, if you could get it out of your end and waste 20 or 30 seconds, that was a big victory. And in playing the Russians, if you took a international refereeing was, in my opinion, very poor at the time. It wasn't the same as National League refereeing or junior refereeing that we were used to. Any little 
any little thing you got a penalty for, well, they were, they knew how to get away with it and we didn't. And so if you got three penalties in the first period against Russia and you're down three, nothing, you know, tough game after that. Like they, they could, they could score three or four goals in the first period on power plays and you'd be out of the game. That's how good they were. And I can go through guys like, like Starshinov, Polupanov, David off, a small defenseman, Raglan, 245-pound defenseman. Um, I mean, I can go uh, Eugenie Zeman, Harlamov, who was a big, big-time player for them in the 72 series. And they were all so skilled. It wasn't like they had a third line. They had three first lines. And that's why they were so tough to play against. Um, you, you got to travel all across Europe and play the, the different countries. Uh, was there a building or a place or a set of fans or all that just sticks out to you? Like, did you get to play the Soviets in Russia at all? Did you get to go to yeah, Sweden or did. Finland or? Yeah. Yeah. We played, we played in all those, uh, you know, uh, Helsinki and Stockholm and um, in Prague. And we played in the Izvestia tournament in Russia at Christmas time and uh, following the Olympics, the next, the next year at Christmas time um, in, in uh, Moscow. And I didn't, I didn't like that building. It was a dull jury building with a huge ice surface. We played a couple of exhibition games in Geneva in Switzerland. Uh, I believe against the U S maybe and one against Czech Republic, Czechoslovakia. And I really liked that rink in Geneva. Um, it was not very far from the lake. And it was a big, I thought a really nice rink. Like the Czech, the rink in Prague wasn't particularly nice. Finland was a nice, Helsinki was a nice rink. It was only about 10 or 12,000 seats. And Stockholm was a big, big rink and it was pretty nice. But I, I, I remember the one in Geneva that I really liked. So the, the, the Soviet Union and the Czechoslovakian rinks weren't very nice and they were big and, and they held 15 or 20,000 people, but they weren't very nice rinks. Good ice surface, which is really all that counted to us. When going to the National Hockey League, so you weren't drafted, you're owned or you're part of the system, the Chicago Blackhawks. What was walking into training camp with guys like Bobby, well, Bobby and Dennis Hall, Stan Makita, uh, Tony Esposito? Like what was walking into the Chicago, the famed Chicago Blackhawks? Yeah, that was really interesting because, uh, I left the Olympic team in the fall of uh, 1969. The team was, was going to, we thought going to be disbanded. And why, why did you think that? Actually, that's a, well, that's a yeah, because the, the world championships, about five or six of us decided to stay one more year for the world championships in 1970. We played in 68 and 69. The world championships were in Stockholm, Sweden. And in 69, they were in Winnipeg or in 70, they were in Winnipeg. So we decided we'd stay one more year. Um, and then the National Hockey League stepped in and sent about six pros to our camp in Winnipeg, again, in August. Uh, we stayed at St. John's Ravens Court in Winnipeg. And, oh, it was, it was they sent Guy Lapointe, Al McNeil, uh, Swoop Carlton, Wayne Carlton, Jim McKenney, who played for the Leafs for a lot of years, I forget who else. There's one or two others. And they were going to prop up our team against uh, to, to try and win the, the world championships in Winnipeg. Well, 
the fight was already brewing about professionals not being able to play in the world championship. And so we kind of put two and two together and uh, with Jackie McLeod's help, uh, he advised me to turn pro because it didn't look like, it looked like the world championships would be canceled in Winnipeg and go somewhere else. And because the pros were there and were sent by the National Hockey League, they did in fact cancel, they canceled the world championships in Winnipeg and they played it somewhere in Europe that year. I don't remember where. And then uh, in the 72 Olympics, people wouldn't remember this, but Canada didn't go because they wouldn't allow professional hockey players. So it started in uh, the fall of 69. The world championships in 70 was canceled in Winnipeg. They played it in Europe, as I said. And then in the 72 Olympics, Canada didn't participate uh, because of the professional issue. And everybody in hockey knew then that the, the Swedes and the Czechs and the Russians were all professionals. And it wasn't really a, it wasn't really a, a fair fight for lack of a better way to put it. So that's what happened when I, and I didn't go to camp in Chicago. You didn't go to camp in Chicago? No, I had, I left the Olympic team in September and uh, Chicago camp was already, was already on. And uh, so we had to sort of put together a strategy and we got a, we got an agent who actually was, by the way, was Alan Eagleson. And, uh, Alan got in touch with uh, the Blackhawks and we started in negotiations and we'd agreed on a contract and Alan and I flew into, uh, I flew from Saskatoon to Toronto. Alan met me at the airport. We flew to Chicago to sign the contract and we get down there and this is uh, fall, fall 69. And there'd been some sort of a glitch and they, what we had agreed to and what they had agreed to were two different things. So, I just, I couldn't believe what I, I couldn't believe my eyes. So I just, I said, Alan and I had to go outside the, the office and talk. And I just said, let's go, let, let's get out of here because it wasn't the same deal as, as what we'd agreed to a couple of days before. And so we, so we left, Alan flew back to Toronto. I flew to Toronto and then straight out to Vancouver to, to uh, enroll at UBC and play, play in the Western Pro League out there for the Vancouver Canucks who weren't in the National Hockey League at that time. Well, the contract got sorted out about four or five days later. And uh, Chicago was on a road trip, the last road trip before uh, camp ended. They were playing the LA Blades, or pardon me, the LA Kings and the California Seals and finishing it off with a game against the Vancouver Canucks in the Western Pro League. So I get a call from my father who was very instrumental in helping me out with the contract, as well as a really fine gentleman by the name of Bud Esty, a friend of my dad's from their days growing up in Saskatoon. He was a, a lawyer in Toronto, actually became a Supreme Court judge. And he was a big help in sorting out my contract. So I got a phone call in the hotel I was at in Vancouver and uh, my father said, uh, We've got the contract sorted out. You can sign it in Vancouver. And by the way, they're playing the Canucks tomorrow night. Be there at five o'clock, you're playing. So I, I went into the, I went down to the, the Canucks rink the next day at five o'clock, went down below the ring and into the dressing room. And I walk in the dressing room and uh, went up to Billy Ray, who was the coach. And I said, oh, Billy, hi, I'm Jerry. I'd met him once before, but I don't think he remembered me. 
Uh, I'm Jerry Pinder. Um, I'm supposed to play for you tonight. I didn't know what to do. And I was like, I was 20 years old. And he said, yeah, your, your seat's over there. Go sit down. So I went and sat down and they had some equipment for me. I had my own skates and uh, it, it was amazing. Like, I think it was Pitt Martin and Dennis Hall or something. I was in between them and I didn't know anybody, nobody. And I'm pretty sure that most of the players in the room thought I was going to be their stick boy for the night. I don't think they had any idea I was going to play for them. <laughs> and it was, it was an amazing day because I was really nervous. I mean, I didn't know anybody. And I sit down between these guys and they're looking at me like, uh, you know, um, there's a stick rack over there, you know, whatever they said. So I, I introduced myself and said, I, I just signed with the team and so on. And then uh, the, the other three rookies that year were uh, Keith Magnuson, Cliffy Coral, both of whom I grew up with in Saskatoon and played against all through my minor hockey. They'd come out of Denver University. And the fourth rookie, uh, myself, Cliff, uh, Cliff and Keith, and Tony Esposito. Well, that was Tony's rookie year. He'd played a little bit with Montreal the year before and then came to Chicago. So um, it was interesting flying. We, we, we drove to Seattle after the game, caught an, all, an overnight flight all night to Chicago. And uh, Tony had come out of Michigan Tech. And uh, when I was younger, I'd been offered a scholarship with, uh, I think it was John McGinnis at Michigan Tech was the head guy. So Tony must have known that I had been in school and I didn't know anybody on the flight, the overnight flight. So I was kind of sitting by myself and I got up to walk around a little bit and he says, uh, Pinder, you know, come on, sit down. So I sat down with Tony and we chatted and he said, uh, you were with, you were in school, were you? And I said, yeah, I was the University of Manitoba. And, he said he graduated from Michigan Tech and we had a pretty neat conversation when I didn't know anybody. And then when I got back to Chicago, I went down to stay at the hotel downtown, the Bismarck, which the whole block, the Bismarck block was owned by the Wirtz family who owned the Blackhawks, still do own the Blackhawks. And uh, training camp was essentially over. Those were their last three games. So we practiced for about four or five days and then played our played opening game in St. Louis. So I didn't, I never even attended training camp. That was, that was pretty amazing. What was, what was your first regular season game like then walking into St. Louis, like being a part of that strapping on the, the Blackhawk Jersey, like just. Uh, yeah. I, I was a big Blackhawk fan all my life and a big Bobby Hall fan and Stan Makita, Whitey Stapleton, all those guys. And of course, Gordy Howe fan, cause he was from Saskatoon and he was in Detroit at the time. And, um, it was, it was amazing. It was, uh, I was so excited. Like I couldn't sleep the night before in the, the hotel in St. Louis. And I ended up, uh, I don't know. I, I think I played, you know, a fair bit, maybe somewhere between 18 and 22 minutes. And, uh, we lost five or six, two, and, uh, I scored both goals for the Blackhawks. So, Two Genos in your first in your first game, first NHL game, and I'm not sure if the guys were mad at me or if they were happy for me because you know it's all about ice time, and uh, it was a different it was a different era then. And, and of course, once I got to know the guys, they're they're a great bunch, and we had a really good team. And um, guys like Bobby Hall are are good friends of mine to this day, um, and he was 
very, very good to me in my rookie season. I didn't even know how to drive on a freeway. And, uh, <laughs> you know, I, I got an apartment out by the airport in a nice area out there. And, you know, for, after I got out of the hotel downtown and went, got moved into my apartment, I went down to practice and I had to be careful where I was going down the freeway. And I finally made it to the rink. Fortunately, I left about an hour and a half early because I knew I'd get lost. And after the practice, I was driving back to the apartment. I still had to move some furniture around and do all the things you have to do and get some groceries. And I was driving for quite a while. And I thought, you know, I don't know if I made my turn here. I got to. So I got off on the next exit and I went to a gas station and I asked the guy at the gas station, I'm, I'm living in uh, Schiller Park and uh, such and such an exit of I, how much further is that exit? And he said, oh, you're about 15, 20 minutes past that exit. You go underneath here and get back on the freeway and go the other way and you get off in such and such an exit. So I missed my exit. I didn't even know what a freeway was. It was, it was amazing. Steep learning curve. <laughs> well, in fairness to you, you're going from the prairies to uh, Chicago. I mean, that's a big booming metropolis. Oh, it was, I don't know, six or seven million people at the time. I'd never seen anything like it. Never. And the Chicago Stadium was unbelievable. I mean, there's no better hockey fans in the world than Chicago Blackhawk hockey fans. Um, the year before I got there, they had finished in the original, the original six division. They had finished in sixth place. And... Uh, we, we played pretty well. Uh, Tony, Tony Esposito won the Vezina trophy. Um, and we finished in first place. And so the whole year was very exciting because they were coming off a, they were coming off a, a sixth place finish. And this particular, my first year, we finished first in the division and uh, we beat Boston by maybe two points or something. And so it was a very exciting year. Um, I couldn't ask for anything more. I mean, I, I was on a really good line the second half of the season with Jimmy Pappen and Pitt Martin. And we all, we all uh, had pretty good second half. So I was, I was excited. It was disappointing to lose to Boston in the semifinals, but they also went on to win the cup and had a very, very good team. You know, compared to these days where uh, it looks like players that have a thousand sticks, as many pairs of skates as they could possibly humanly want, equipment out the wazoo in general. How was it back then? When you walked in the Chicago Blackhawks, was it like, hey, Jerry, here's 10 wood sticks. Start breaking them and we'll just keep supplying you. What what was it like when you showed up in Chicago equipment-wise? Yeah, um, I, I had uh, my own pair of skates, but, but you had to have two pair then in case you broke a blade or something like that. And so they got me an, another pair right away. And... The, the, the Northland people, I believe it was Northland Sticks, came very shortly after the season started and took my, uh, took my measurements, the kind of stick I wanted with the kind of curves were, were kind of just starting then, although Bobby Hall had a, a big, beautiful curve on his stick and Stan Makita also had a big one on his. And so they, they, uh, they, they I got a stick and sawed it off to the length I wanted and showed them the kind of curve I wanted. And shortly after that, about, I don't know, maybe 20 or 30 sticks showed up and uh, they were wooden sticks in those days. So, you know, of course they broke quite a bit. And 
we'd have we'd have a second stick on the rack on the on the bench in case we broke one and you know if you broke two somebody had to run back to the dressing room and get you another stick so i was i was well looked after in terms of equipment and uh, skates and sticks for sure what was the practice <laughs> i mean what was it like going to the rink every day with bobby hull and the just the list of uh hall of famers that you know we keep mentioning where we're were practices like just a thing to behold? Were you in awe of what was going on or were you just having a grand old time, uh, you know, through those couple of years? That's a good question. Um, I would say both. I was in awe and I was also having a great time. And um, it was kind of, I was lucky in a way to go to a team where, you know, Hull was, Hull and Makita were the best players, but, you know, Bobby skated by me and when we were doing our warm-up skating and tapped me in the rear end and said, hey, pick it up, pick it up, Pinder. And he was a very hardworking guy at practice. So um, it was it was a heck of a lot of fun. It was a learning experience. But uh, more than that, I saw these, these uh, 7, 8, 10-year, 12-year pros um, who worked pretty darn hard at practice. And, and that was really good for me. It was good for their for my career. That's for sure. You know, when you look back at your time in Chicago playing for the Hawks, is there a memorable night or a memorable moment that goes along with that time in your career? Oh boy. Um, certainly the first game in St. Louis, even though we lost, um, it was pretty memorable. And then at, at that time, hockey night in Canada was out of Toronto on Saturday nights. And we went in to play the Leafs. And I was informed before the game by somebody on the broadcast crew that I was going to be interviewed in between periods. And uh, I sort of went, oh, what do I do? I I don't really want to be interviewed. Um, I guess I don't have any choice. And I knew my... I knew my family back in Saskatoon would be watching the game and, you know, we, we regularly beat Toronto in those days because we did have a very good team, but I was pretty nervous in that first period, knowing full well what I had to do after the period. I have to go into this uh, interview room and go through an interview with, uh, I can't remember if it was Dave Hodge or who exactly it was back then, but, it was, I remember that very well because of how nervous I was and the fact that I didn't really want to go to the interview, but I didn't have any choice. So that was, a, that was an interesting memory I have. I think, I think the, my second year, the, the seven game Stanley cup final against Montreal, where we lost in game seven in Chicago to lose the cup. Um, we were up to nothing about halfway through the game and uh, Jacques Lemaire who was a terrific hockey player. I gather a very good coach too. I never played for him, but uh, he, he came, he, he was rushing the puck and he came over the center red line, two or three strides over the red line and let, and he could really shoot it. And he let, he let a slap shot go, went over Tony's shoulder and it was, it was two one. And then Henry Richard went wide on, uh, on our defense and cut in front of the net and scored. And it was two, two. And then one Henry Richard scored again, three, two. So, we lose the Stanley Cup final in Game Seven in 
Chicago, and and that's a that's not a good memory, but it's certainly a memory I've never forgotten about. Well, you got to play in a Stanley Cup final, go to Game Seven with two original six teams. I have to assume the Madhouse was pretty mad, uh, rocking that night walking in. Um, I got to watch Jerry. I got to watch the highlights today. I looked it up on YouTube and got to watch the Game Seven highlights. Uh, broken down and I got to see the goal from just over the red line blown in and uh, you could see uh, it was a very cool I don't know to just kind of warp yourself back to the time and throw yourself in the Chicago stadium and and see the Canadians and well and the, and the Hawks going at it for game seven the Stanley Cup finals yeah our, it it was so loud in the stadium especially as that as as uh the year progressed in my first year there because we ended up in first place. And then the second year progressed again because we were, uh, we were moved to the expansion division. Um, I think there was another two teams that came in. I think it was Buffalo and Vancouver. And I, and I think Buffalo went to the uh, original division. I can't remember. I have to look it up, but um, we won first place the second year in the expansion division. And, uh, and then we, and then we end up in, we end up in the finals and the fans were, were just wild. Um, and because the, the, the actual, the old stadium building was not a big building because they stacked the decks, the seats didn't go back. They went, they were on top of each other. And that's why the noise was so loud. And during the national anthem, uh, and if you watch them in the, in the, uh, in the new United Center, you'll still see the same thing, not as loud, but you'll see the same thing. With about 20% of the anthem left to sing, the fans start going crazy. And they did it in the Chicago Stadium. It was so loud, you, you standing on the bench, you could not converse with your line mate because they couldn't hear you. That's how loud it was at ice level. And I've never seen anything like it when I was in the national league and I've never seen anything like it since it was an unbelievable feeling. And the old stadium was just a fabulous building. And now the new building I've been down several times and it's really a lot of fun too, but the memories of the old building are, are still very, very fresh in my mind. You know, you, uh, you have a couple of years where you play for the Hawks and you get within like, tasting the Stanley cup. I'm sure that memory, um, me sitting there and dwelling on it doesn't make you feel all great and warm inside, <laughs> but you get traded to the California golden seals. Now as a fan, they were there for like this short little stint. They got maybe some of the most iconic jerseys, probably for all the wrong reasons. And yet you got to strap it on there for a full season Okay, let, let's talk about the California Golden Seals for a, a brief moment. Uh, you're one of very few players to ever suit up for this team. What can you tell us about uh, playing for the Seals in Oakland? Oh, we had a new general manager there, Gary Young. Um, I think, I can't remember, I think he came out of Oshawa, but he was a great guy and a real smart GM. And uh, I was very, very pleased to be with the California Seals. Um, they were rebuilding. We had a young team. Uh, we should have made the playoffs. We made, we lost our last seven games, I think, to, to miss the playoffs. 
but we were young guys uh, on a mission and uh, you know I was living in East Bay south of Oakland and uh, the weather was really good um, I, I, I ended up on a really good line with uh, Ivan Boulder and, and Bobby Sheehan and Ike was a big strong centerman and a good really good playmaker he could shoot the puck and so we had a heck of a line and, and we, we scored a lot of points. All three of us had more than 20 goals. And um, one of our issues there after that year we had, we had good years. And one of the issues there was Charlie Finley was the owner of the team. And he owned the baseball Oakland Athletics as well. So the Oakland Athletics had, had worn white cleats they were the first to go away from the dark color cleats. And so Charlie Finley thought it'd be a great idea for us to wear white skates. And uh, he was serious. So we all got us fitted with our CCM tax and the skates arrived in, uh, I think we were playing Minnesota on the road and they arrived that day in Minnesota. And Charlie had flown in, he lived in Chicago and he'd flown in from Chicago to see the game. And then he comes into the hotel and he sees these, stacks of skates in, in the CCM boxes in the lobby. So Carol Vadney was our captain. And Carol, we all talked about like we couldn't wear them that night because they're too stiff and we lost, you know, 10 nothing to Minnesota. So we had to figure out a way not that we could talk Charlie into letting us wear our, our other skates because he'd flown in from Chicago to see this. And so Carol had this long talk with him in the lobby before we got on the bus to go to the game. And finally convinced Charlie that uh, we had to skate on these things for about four or five days before they were broken in. Otherwise, we'd get beaten badly because we'd be hard to turn, hard to stop, you name it, because they were pretty stiff, stiff leather in those days. And he finally gave in and we didn't, uh, we didn't have to wear them. But two or three games later on the road, we practiced with them. And so we, we go out in warm-ups with uh, white skates first time ever in the National League history. And uh, the funniest part about the whole thing was the interesting comments we got from the players on the other team during warmups about our white skates. <laughs> and some of them I can't, uh, I can't repeat, but it was interesting. There would be 10 players on the other team that made comments to us about those white skates. And we just kind of had to shrug and go with the flow and play as, play as good as we could do. That's all we could do. I'd read that uh, he, <laughs> Mr. Finley wanted or insisted that the skates be uh, remain as pristine as possible. So after, yes. after periods, he'd be having the trainers repaint them to cover any scuffs. Well, it was interesting. He was a, he was a stickler for that sort of thing. And, and uh, there was, there was two elements to the, to the white skates. One was, don't get injured on the California seals because the trainers don't have time to treat you. They're always painting the skates white. That was the first thing. And the second thing was the last 10 or 15 games of the year, my, my skates were so heavy from, you know, six or seven layers of white paint on them that I could hardly stand up. And they, every little scuff mark you got along the boards would be sort of a dark mark on the white skates. So, you know, every, every third, fourth, fifth game, whenever the trainers had time and, you know, it was at the expense of the guys with injuries, we'd walk into the dressing room before practice and there they were painting our white skates. 
And so I don't know how many, how many layers of paint I had on mine at the end of the year, but I know my skates are way too heavy for me. And uh, so my, my experience with white skates was, um, I would say, less than satisfactory. That's a, that's, that's a great story. I mean, the California Golden Seals, I just have this idea and I'm probably off on it, but you walk into the locker room, there's the trainers sitting there painting the skates. There's like four or five guys sitting there smoking a cigarette because they're just like, what the hell are we doing here? We're painting skates in between periods. I can't even move in these things. Like, what is going on? Well, Charlie Finley was uh, quite a showman in his day as the owner of the Oakland A's and he carried on with the California seals and he had, you know, different nights in the Oakland Coliseum. There'd be a ladies night and whatever other ones he could think of. And, um, I, I quite liked him. He was a, a very nice man, but, you know, come time for contract talk. And he was, uh, he was extremely tough on the players. And I, we had a good young team and that, that team that year, the World Hockey League was, World Hockey Association was formed that summer. And that team we had, which was a pretty good team in Oakland, uh, I think I think they lost eight eight or nine players to the World Hockey Association because Charlie, uh, he, he, wouldn't, uh, he wouldn't pay the players. And um, we had, a, like I said, we had a really good line with Ike Boulder and Bobby Sheehan. And I had about, I don't know, 60 points or something like that, led the team in scoring. And he called me up in July that summer and the world hockey association was being formed. And, and so a lot of us were entertaining offers from the world hockey association. We didn't really know if it was going to be real or not, but we, because we were playing for the seals, we were willing to listen. And um, at that time I was making $28,000 a year and it was enough money to, to uh, pay your taxes buy a car and, and pay your apart your your apartment rental and so he called me in saskatoon and i don't know how the heck he would have ever found my number in saskatoon i was staying with my parents i was home visiting them and um he was he was very nice on the phone and the kid i was out in the golf course and the kid ran out to get me off the golf course because he'd phoned the he got the golf course number from my mother who answered the phone at home and uh she didn't know who charlie finley was but she thought he was a friend of mine. So she gave him the number at the golf course. The kid comes out and gets me and said, Mr. Finney's on the phone. He needs to talk to you right away and so on. So I go, Oh man, we were, we were having a pretty fun game of golf and I had to leave about the 16th or 17th hole. I go into the general manager's office at the golf course and it's Mr. Finley. And uh, he had a real deep voice. And he said, young man, you know, we're so proud of the year you had for our California golden seals. Um, I said, thank you, Mr. Finley. And he said, uh, now let me see, you were making $28,000 last year. Is that correct? I said, yes, uh, that was, that was great. Thank you very much again, Mr. Finley. I was being as polite as I could because he was the owner. And he said, well, just to show you how much we appreciate your contributions, I'd like to offer you $28,500 to play next year. So, I was quite taken aback by that because I thought I'd hit pay dirt. I thought I'd make like 32,000 or something. And, and he was going to give me a $500 raise after a pretty good year. So I said, uh, I was sort of stunned. And I said, uh, Mr. Finley, um, thank you very much. Uh, I just, I think I need a couple of days to think this one over. 
he said, uh, young man, that's just fine with me. You think it over for a couple of days. And then if you decide you want to play for the California Seals, my offer still stands. So that's kind of the way, uh, that's kind of the way players were treated in those days. Score 60 points, get a $500 raise. Yeah. I mean, it was, it sounds ridiculous now, but that wasn't, un, it wasn't just me. It wasn't unusual for, um, my first year in Chicago, uh, Bobby held out for, I think, 120000 He was, you know, he and Orr were, were Orr was the best, and, Orr and Bobby was top five for sure. And he sat out 20 games. Um, and he didn't win the battle with the Hawks and uh, had to come back with what they had offered him. And so the best player in the world, or no, top five in the world, was making around a hundred thousand before the uh, World Hockey Association, and it was just a different world. It was the owner's world, and you were owned, literally owned by the team, so you had no options. There was no such thing as free agency, and uh, that's that's the world we lived in. And I got a, I had a really good year with the Seals. Loved it out there, by the way. I really enjoyed, really enjoyed it. We we'd come home off a road trip and. You know, we'd be home for two or three weeks because our road trips were very long. And we'd, we'd uh, go on the east side of the mountains, east side of Oakland, and there's good golf courses after practice. We'd go and play golf. And all of that was new to me. I'd never done that during a hockey season before. So I really enjoyed it, and I would have been, I would have loved to have gone back to uh, the Seals. You know, you got you to gotta, you gotta tell me a story about – I've read about the Golden Seals and the different nights they'd have to try and entice fans to come in and some of the shenanigans that went on. What was one of the best nights that you can re- recall uh, where they brought in whatever to try and bring fans in? Yeah. Well, there was there was a couple of different ones that were were very weird. But the one that I remember the most was uh i forget what it was called but it was players night something like that or fan fan versus players night or something so instead of getting ready for the game we were out interacting with the fans uh for some period of time before warm-ups and i'd never i'd never ever seen that happen before never since you know you're trying to you're trying to get ready and concentrate and, and make sure you had a, had a good nap in the afternoon, ready to go and so on. And, you know, you go down to the rink and you got to get dressed quite a bit earlier and then go out in the lobby and interact with uh, literally hundreds of fans and then go put your skates on and go out for warm-up. So that was, that was very different to me. I, I've never seen it since. And I, I didn't even know, I doubt it ever happened before that. What were some of you say the word weird? Um, I'm curious now. What was a couple of the weird ones? Oh boy. Um, well, he owned the Oakland A's at the time, so it was a hockey game, but it was a baseball night. It was baseball night at the Oakland Coliseum, and uh, I forget all the things that went on. And in fact, there were quite a few. Oakland athletic baseball players, I believe at that game uh, because it was baseball night. So 
you know, you go, you go, we used to draw pretty well in Oakland too. It's about a 14,000 seat building and we used to be close to sold out most of the time. And so you go out in the, you go for warmest and you go out during the game and they're announcing so-and-so from the Oakland athletics and he'd wander around, shake hands. And, and, you know, we were playing a hockey game and I found it, I found it to be very, very different that we'd be playing a big game that we, you know, we needed to win every game to make the playoffs. And, and it was baseball night. So they were, they were talking, the, the announcer was talking baseball all night and I, I, I didn't quite pick up on that. That wasn't, that wasn't my idea of a hockey game. <laughs> <laughs> Why with the WHA that comes in and they lure a bunch of NHLers over with a bit more money, essentially is uh, the way I understand it. Obviously you can, uh, you can tell us how it went for you, Jerry, but um, what was it about Cleveland that was attractive and um you know, was it, was it the, the Cheevers? Was it the guys like that that brought you there or, or how did you end up in Cleveland? Well, I, um, I had originally been taken in the WHA West world league draft by the Edmonton Oilers. And, uh, I wanted to stay down in the States. And so I just said, just trade my rights or whatever you do then. And they trade my rights to Cleveland. And then the biggest single motivator to go to the world league for me was Bobby Hull signed with the Winnipeg Jets and his accountant in Chicago was the same gentleman I had as a, as an agent slash accountant. And Bobby signed for $2 million. I believe it was a million dollar bonus and uh, 250,000 bucks a year for four years. So that was unheard of. So it was essentially 500 grand a year for four years. It was unheard of. And so my, uh, accountant slash it was Bobby's. He's the one that introduced me to him actually. And he called me and said, it's legit. They just signed Bobby for so much and so on. And so then we started negotiating seriously with Cleveland and they were very good about it. I mean, you know, we knew the owner quite well. Nick Maletti was the owner and Bill Needham was the coach. And I went down to meet them. I went down with, well, actually Skippy, Skippy Craig and I met on the airplane on the way down. And we were both going in to, to meet the, this was in, I think, I think late July. And we were going down to meet the, the team owner and the coach and see the building and this and that. We went to a baseball game, Cleveland Indians baseball game. And, uh, and Skippy and I had played against each other for uh, th the three years that I was in the National League. And so we got, we got to be good pals on that trip. And he was, he was liking what he was hearing and I was liking what I was hearing. And then Cheevers, whom I didn't know very well at the time because he was at Boston, he had, he had signed and he got a hell of a deal in Cleveland. So we thought, well, Paul Schmier, who was a good buddy of mine with Chicago and then was in the same trade when I went to the California Seals, he was negotiating with Cleveland also. So Paul and I were in touch and we looked at our offers and said, let's go. And Skippy said, let's go. And uh, pretty soon we'd assembled a pretty darn good team. And, uh, I was happy to stay in the States and I was happy to, uh, you know, I'd lived in the East Chicago, arguably not the East, but I'd lived down there. And I, 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 when I visited Cleveland, I really liked it. Great city. And that just kind of fell into place. And I knew several of the guys that jumped like, uh, cheesy and I got good pals and Schmerzy was a good buddy of mine. 
Skippy became a real good friend. Gary Jarrett, um, Ray Clearwater, Ron Bucky Buchanan, Paul Andrea. We had a really good team. So I was kind of drawn there because I didn't think, first of all, they were really good to me. And secondly, I didn't think that I had much chance of uh, actually making any money with the seals because, you know, we felt like Charlie Finney was in it for the long haul being the owner. And he just was, he was not prepared to pay anybody. And, and uh, I think he sold the team probably two years, maybe three years later, but that would have been, if I'd have stayed there for another three years, say that would have been a huge part of my career uh, stuck, not making much money. And, and uh, I saw it as an opportunity in Cleveland plus great group of guys too, really good group of guys. So it was, it was a fun deal. I was happy as heck to go. You know, I, I mentioned that with the, the California golden seals that it's a time that uh, very few players got to experience because um, they were only there for a short period of time. Well, the WHA is, is another thing that only lasts, what is it? Seven years, 72 to yeah. 78, 79, somewhere in there. Like yeah, it's such I think a it was six years. I think, yeah. Yeah. A, a real brief period. I assume the W in my brain, I go, the WHA is like the NHL. I, I just assume it was the same thing in different cities, but you played it um, with Cleveland. You played four seasons. Uh, what, what was, what was the WHA like for, for us folks that never got to witness it? Um, well, the first year, I think there were 12 teams. So the big thing would be that, uh, the NHL had probably 14 teams in and 12, 12 more major league teams in the world hockey league. So the product, the team on the ice in the national hockey league, and in the World Hockey Association was watered down a little bit because all of a sudden you had uh, 20 times 12, you know, you had all those new new uh, people being in the major leagues and some of them were from the NHL, and a lot of them were from the American League. So it watered down the National Hockey League and it also watered down the World Hockey Association. Of course, it had never been formed, so watered down is not the right word, but um, so you're, again, you're, your top 10 players on each team were pretty darn good. Your, your bottom six maybe weren't so hot. And then that was the era of uh, Boston won the cup in 72 and then Philly in 74 and five. And it was the era of um, the goon squads coming into the national league and the world hockey association. And it was uh, pretty, pretty mean, pretty dirty, but at the same time, we didn't have all the rules that, that uh, they have now, the new rules. So you had to be able to take care of yourself, but it was pretty good hockey. Like I think two years into the W the world hockey association, we finally, the two leagues agreed to play and they played each other for in exhibition games for two years. And I don't think anybody would know this, but the, you can look up the stat, the WHA, I think won 62% of the games against the NHL. So, um, so you're saying, you're saying Cleveland would go play some exhibition games against Detroit for, for arguments. Well, we played, no, we played Pittsburgh, but you played Pittsburgh. Yeah. And we whipped them in the first game and we go back into Pittsburgh a couple of nights later and they, they had, uh, dressed a serious goon squad and, uh, they, they tried their best to pound the daylights out of us. And we lost about, uh, you know, five, four, you know, five, three, something like that. I forget. 
So we were every bit as good and probably a better team than Pittsburgh. But um, as I said, the goon squads were in vogue then, and they dressed a, a pretty, pretty ugly team that night in, in the second game in Pittsburgh. And uh, they beat the daylights out of us physically, and, and we lost the game. You know, you mentioned goon squad. Who is the toughest guy that you've ever stepped on the ice with that you just went, ooh, you don't want to mess with X? Oh, boy. Uh, The toughest guy that I ever saw in either the NHL or the World Hockey Association was Paul Schmier. And he was my teammate. But he was about 5'11", and I think he weighed in every day at about 178 pounds. And, I mean, he beat up everybody that came along. Big clowns, good players, tough guys, you name it. He, I never saw him lose a fight. And, you know, there was obviously other, other ones. I mean, in Boston, uh, Wayne Cashman was a, was a pretty mean hombre. And, uh, you know... Derek Sanderson was, he was really a good hockey player, but he was also one of the meanest SOBs in the National Hockey League. And he jumped to the World League. Uh, he got a ton of money to jump. And I don't know that he ever played. He was, uh, he was getting involved in some, some uh, off-ice activities at the time that weren't very good. But he was a really good player. And he was, uh, he was really, really tough. You know, in Montreal... Gila Point was a tough guy, real tough guy. St. Louis, Bobby Plager. Bobby Plager was a pretty good hockey player and, and real tough. Um, you know, there was there was quite a few of them that that I couldn't get involved with because I was 5'8 and, you know, 175, 180 pounds. So you had to be a little bit careful. And again, the, the rules weren't such that you got, they weren't, you didn't get a bad penalty for doing something stupid. So there was lots of that going on. <laughs> <laughs> I just enjoy the, you know, I was thinking in my head, I was always told as a young guy, well, not told, I just inferred, I guess, that you had to be a big guy in the NHL. And since I started doing this podcast, I think of Dennis Polonich, who is my size, 5'6", five, 5'7". Five, I think of Theo Fleury, once again, roughly the same size. And now I keep hearing your sizes at five, you know, like you're, you're not a giant of a man and you're, oh, no. and, and actually the more I dig into it, there's, there's quite a few guys that were small and talented and a little bit fierce, not willing to back down from anyone. And they had very successful careers. Yeah. I mean that you were loud way back when, well, even when Theo played and Theo was a wonderful hockey player, but you were allowed to protect yourself uh, without being suspended. And if that meant um, you had to protect yourself with your stick, you know, so be it. And so as long as the little guys were, uh, you know, they had a little bit of jam and they were prepared to protect themselves, then then we were fine in in the league. I mean, if you got into a fight, it was pretty tough because it was generally with a guy quite a bit bigger. So, you know, you kind of hang on for dear life, but, Overall, you, the big thing I take from what's, what's, what was going on then and what's going on now is you were allowed to protect yourself. Now you're not. And uh, the other thing is they don't, 
in today's national hockey league, it's all speed and skill, good, good shooters. And so they're not, you know, you don't have to protect yourself as much as you did back then because, uh, they don't, they play a different style altogether. And it's a very good style, by the way. I, I like the style they play, but it's, you know, you're talking 30, 40 years ago and that's a long time. Yeah. Yeah. Well, let's, uh, I've been, I've had you on now, uh, Jerry, I don't want to hold you all night. I certainly can sit and listen to, to the stories of old all night, <laughs> but I think let's move into the, the final five, the crude master final five, a shout out to Heath and Tracy McDonald, who've, uh, supported the podcast since the very beginning. Um, just five quick questions go as long or as short as you want. As you've noticed for me, I'm willing to sit and, and chat it for as long as you got, but we'll do five more nice and quick. Uh, the first is a favorite of mine. If you could sit down with anyone, just like I'm doing to pick their brain about their career or about their experiences, who would be the one guy you'd want? Uh, um, well, I'm pretty fortunate uh, to have done that with Bobby Hall. He's a good friend of mine. And the other guy whose brain I'd really like to pick, and I know, but he's not a good friend or anything, is Bobby Orr. Yeah, Bobby. Well, both. Both are great, solid choices. If you could pick line mates today to go on, well, to take on your line, who would you who would you put on with you? If they are playing today? Yeah, today or in the past, don't matter. Um... Yeah, good. That's a really good question. I mean, the uh, the obvious answer would be uh, Connor McDavid, <laughs> and uh, the second or or first guy uh, that I would that I would want to play with is Bobby Orr. Toss Bobby Orr up on the front. Well, he he was a rover. He didn't really play defense. He was all over the place, and he's the only guy. He was such a good skater. He could do it and do it very well. But, he, you know, it's interesting that he's called a defenseman. But if you watch many clips of him, um, you know, I, I just – I would take the attitude that he was a rover, not a defenseman. <laughs> if you were traded and could bring one player with you, who would you take? A former teammate. If you were traded from a team, what former teammate would you bring with you? I was fortunate in that regard because uh, when I got traded – to the California Seals, Paul Schmier was in the trade. And then when I jumped to Cleveland, Paul was jumped to Cleveland as well. And so it would be him. He was a man's man. And he, uh, he was a really good captain. He was a really good team guy. Um, if you weren't pulling your weight as a player, he'd let you know. And if you were getting treated poorly as a player, he'd go to the, he'd go to the management and straighten it out. So he's the guy. He's the guy. Cool. Uh, you're, if you could go back to one arena that is no longer, so it's been retired, what arena would it be? Yeah, if I, if I could do two of them, I would do the Chicago Stadium and the Montreal Forum. Montreal Forum was terrific. It was best ice surface in the league and good fans, uh, good place to visit. You know, they had good food. Um, but I really liked the Montreal Forum and I really liked the Chicago Stadium. And interestingly enough, Sean, they were different, uh, different sized ice surfaces. Chicago Stadium was a small surface and Montreal was pretty big. Your final one. If you could go back to uh, your time in Saskatchewan, 
what barn or what town did you enjoy playing in or was kind of an anomaly where you went and played back as a kid? Oh, I would say that the place I liked playing in the best was Estevan. Um, they were a really good team. They were a tough team physically, and it was a very small building, very small ice surface. So you had to keep your wits about you, and, and uh, you had to be ready for anything that might happen to you. But it was also a, it was also a huge motivator. Going into Estevan, we knew we had to play well. And we knew what the game was going to be like. We knew it was going to be tough. And I just really enjoyed the building. So I would say uh, Estevan. Well, here's a 5A, bo- or a, yeah, 5A bonus question for you. Skip says that you'd probably talk up Saskatoon as the toughest hombres around, but he wants you to remember Battleford was a pretty tough group of characters. What, what do you got to say on that? <laughs> we beat North Battleford in the uh, Junior B Championships before I started in junior. And I always talked to Skip about uh, those North Battleford guys. They were all owned by Estevan. And uh, those guys, the North Battleford guys, if there was anybody who could take pretty good care of me and and give it to me, but good on the ice, it was them. On the other hand, we had, in Saskatoon, we had a couple of really tough guys, Terry Sexsmith being one, and Ronnie Hopkinson. So when we went into Estevan, and the North Battleford guys were after me. They had to answer. They were accountable to a couple guys on our team too. So that was okay. <laughs> well, I do appreciate you sitting down with us and uh, and sharing some stories from your career, Jerry. It's been a lot of fun. Yeah, thank you, Sean. My pleasure. I really enjoyed it. Hey, folks. Thanks again for joining us today. If you just stumble on the show and like what you hear, please click subscribe. Remember, every Monday and Wednesday, a new guest will be sitting down to share their story. The Sean Newman Podcast is available for free on Apple, Spotify, YouTube, and wherever else you find your podcast fix. Until next time.